All throughout 2019, CTSI Discovery Radio shared stories of research and discoveries through translational science including medical improvements. In medicine, we can't always fix everything, but we can really control it if we get it right. There is a way to prevent with vaccination, and so it is available for males and females. We have improvements in the devices to deliver the treatment. Innovations through research. We're amazingly close, and we will have a medication that will effectively cure cystic fibrosis gives us the strong hope that we'll be able to develop therapy that we can provide women so that they don't have to undergo these surgical procedures. This is an oral medication, so we have high hopes for a quicker uptake. And impactful personal stories of perseverance and positive outcomes. You bruise your brain, and if it doesn't hurt like a bruise, then you know maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Well, there was. And I wanted to see my 21st birthday. That was really important to me. I will be on the operating table in less than 12 hours. You know, medicine's amazing. We'll reflect on all of this and more inside this special 2019 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. Researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We launched our 2019 year of shows in January with an update on the All of Us Research Project to build a database of 1 million volunteers willing to share their DNA information with the goal of advancing precision medicine, treatment based on each person's unique genomic makeup. We heard from Eric Dishman, National Director of the All of Us Research Program. This year has gone by incredibly fast, but we've also had some incredible accomplishments in the All of Us Research Program. And we said to the country, the doors are open. Consider joining this audacious research effort. And so far, the response has been phenomenal. They have heeded the call. We have people who have joined from all 50 states. We're doing incredibly well on racial and ethnic diversity, which is a fundamental commitment of the program. We also heard from Jenna, who works for the All of Us Research Program here in Wisconsin, who sees how it impacts individuals and families in our state. I don't think I have a single person that couldn't relate. Everybody has kind of shared their story on why they think this program is important. You know, we all care about our families and we want something better than what we have. But if I can do anything to change the outcome for my kids or my grandkids, that to me is worth being here and putting the time and effort into making sure people know about the All of Us Research Program. Hear Jenna's full story and learn more about the All of Us Research Program by checking out episode number 57. On our February show, we updated on the epidemic of heroin and prescription opioid misuse and related deaths that have impacted our communities on a local, state, and national level. 
we heard from Dr. Jillian Theobald, co-director of the CTSI's Adult Translational Research Unit at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who told us here in southeastern Wisconsin. We have been on a pretty significant upward trend in the last couple of years, but with six months worth of data through 2018 that we have so far, it looks like we may see either a leveling off or a decrease in the overall deaths. Which seems to be reflective of what's happening happening elsewhere. What we've seen is that the number of prescription opioids prescribed has leveled off. And so I think some of this stuff is mirroring what's happening nationally. And while the battle wages on, the fact remains that there are people who need medications for chronic pain. We heard from Dr. Cheryl Stuckey, professor and director, pain division of the Neuroscience Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who told us that the highly addictive nature of opioid pain medications create a critical need for access to pain-killing medications that cannot cause addiction, do not cause abuse, do not have severe effects with potential overdose, would make life a lot easier for the prescribers and could save the lives of many patients. But she adds that we must be careful not to unfairly stigmatize medications, even opioids, and those who need them. Chronic pain is oftentimes very isolating, and the individuals with chronic pain feel alone, and they feel misunderstood by their family, by their friends, and even misunderstood by their caregivers and doctors. According to the American Sleep Association, over 40 million Americans suffer from chronic sleep disorders each year. And an additional 20 million have occasional problems getting sleep. In March, we heard from Dr. B. Tucker Woodson, director of the Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin's Sleep Disorders Program. Dr. Woodson told us we can't underestimate the importance of sleep in maintaining good overall health. Sleep is one of the three main legs of good health. Good diet, exercise, and sleep. Getting sufficient sleep is more than simply a quality of life issue. Now, sleep is critical for health. We now know that sleep deprivation can be associated with cardiovascular disease, affect metabolism and diabetes, there are many restorative other health processes. So it's far more than just a simple quality of life issue. It's critical for health. Dr. Woodson shared some common symptoms that might indicate a sleep disorder. People being excessively tired during the day. Other symptoms can be difficulty in initiating or actually falling asleep, but the most common symptom that we see is actually snoring, because snoring is kind of the hallmark of sleep apnea, and sleep apnea is one of the most common disorders that we see. We learned what sleep apnea is. Sleep apnea is a process in which the upper airway collapses during sleep. It collapses because the upper airway is too small. So when you go to sleep and muscles relax and the airway gets more narrow, the person's body responds by working harder to breathe. That creates the noise of snoring. But also then that extra work makes the quality of sleep poor and people may be excessively tired. And then it can affect oxygen levels and have impacts on health. In the end, Dr. Woodson said, we have to properly value sleep because we need our sleep. Sleep tends to be sacrificed, but sleep really is one of the key aspects of good health. Many of us were unaware of when we are sleep deprived. And so you need a little bit of insight and be aware of what some of the symptoms are, and then you can intervene and act on it. Kayla Pierce joins us. 
Kayla, we also learned about sleep studies. Right, Brian. We heard from Dr. Rose Franco in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin, who explained how sleep studies work. So there's brainwave measurement, there's respiratory measurement using effort belts and an airflow sensor and a pulse ox, and then there's EKG leads so we can see what's going on with the heart rhythm, and there's a couple of leads on the legs to monitor for movement. There's also a video component so that the tech is seeing what position you're in, if you're doing anything funny in your sleep, and then data that's coming in is quality checked in the control room while the sleep tech is monitoring the patient. And Dr. Franco said, if you're concerned you might have a sleep disorder, speak up. If you recognize that you are not getting quality sleep or that you're sleepier than you ought to be, bring it up with your doctor. By talking about it with your physician, you may be able to then proceed to having testing if that's appropriate to further evaluate why you're not sleeping well. Learn more about sleep disorders and sleep studies on our March show, episode number 59. With spring in the air, our April show focused on the chronic breathing condition known as asthma, particularly among children. Dr. Joshua Steinberg is part of a team of physicians treating pediatric and adult asthma patients at Children's Wisconsin, and he shared insight all about asthma including its symptoms. The top four, a chronic, usually dry, non-productive cough. Wheezing, which is a whistling sound that usually happens at the end of a breath. Chest tightness, so I've heard it described where you feel like there's an elephant on your chest or there's a belt tightening around it. And shortness of breath is the fourth symptom, a sensation where you just cannot get enough air sufficiently in or out. It's known causes. We know that there's a strong genetic influence. That being said, genetics don't clearly determine whether you're going to have it yourself. Our environment is a major factor for the development of asthma, especially in kids. Exposure to irritants in the air, especially cigarette smoke, and we have good evidence that smoke dramatically increases the risk of developing asthma later on. And while it's not curable, Dr. Steinberg is encouraged by the ability to effectively treat asthma. In the role that I have now, we can make a change, and usually it's a substantial change. In medicine, we can't always fix everything, but with asthma, it's reversible. We can't prevent it, we can't cure it right now, but we can really control it if we get it right. Speaking of treatments, we also learned about an experimental drug in development at the Milwaukee Institute for Drug Discovery at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Dr. Alexander Arnold is an associate professor at the UWM Institute who told us he hopes this new oral treatment makes the inhaler obsolete and what that would mean for kids with asthma. One of the biggest drawbacks is compliance. If you give the child the inhaler, you're not really sure if it's used correctly at that point. Children don't really adhere to a strict organization when you have to take your medication. I think it would be a relief, especially for the parent, anxious about that child getting an asthma attack in a situation where they are not present. Now, with an oral application, we can reduce that risk so we could have the parents be less anxious. I think for the child, it's a social aspect. Because if the child is taking an inhaler and is the only one, there can be some social pressure that the child is not taking the medication because of that environment. And so this would also fall away with an oral medication. To learn more, check out our April show, episode number 60. Each year, nearly 3 million people in the U.S. suffer traumatic brain injuries. And while most are mild, TBIs present challenges for researchers, clinicians, and patients alike. 
In May, we learned about research looking into mild traumatic brain injury with Dr. Lindsay Nelson from the Brain Injury Research Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Traumatic brain injury means that a hit to the head has caused some change in how the brain works. So the term TBI covers a wide spectrum of brain injury ranging from mild, where one only experiences very brief changes in brain function and gets better quickly, all the way to severe life-threatening injuries. Dr. Nelson said even a mild TBI, like a concussion, can significantly impact a patient's quality of life, at least temporarily. It can affect it pretty dramatically, especially early after injury. So patients may be unable to work or drive or do normal activities right after the injury. However, with time and with the right support, patients with MTBI almost always achieve a good outcome with no long-term problems. We also heard a real-life experience from a man in our community who recently suffered a mild TBI. I lost consciousness. I don't know how long it was, but I was leaning up against the vehicle and it felt like there were electrical shocks going through my entire body. You know, like you see stars. And I guess that's why cartoonists draw stars because that's a thing, right? Still, he said it was difficult to believe that he had the injury he was diagnosed with. You know, a little bit of disbelief in the sense that, well, how does that happen? Because your brain doesn't hurt, you don't have a headache, but you're slurring your speech, you're repeating yourself, things like that that wouldn't be natural. But when something doesn't hurt, that doesn't connect, right? You bruise your brain, and if it doesn't hurt like a bruise, then, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Well, there was. Learn about mild traumatic brain injury on our May show, episode number 61. We've all vomited at one time or another, but imagine having episodes that last for several hours or even several days. In June, our show focused on a chronic condition known as cyclic vomiting syndrome, or CVS. We heard from Dr. Thangam Venkatesan, professor of gastroenterology at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. She's an expert in the treatment of CVS, a disease that's as awful as it sounds. Cyclic vomiting syndrome is what we call a chronic functional gastrointestinal disorder, and it's pretty awful. If you've actually seen somebody in the throes of a CVS episode, it's terrible. People vomit and retch to the point where they're completely exhausted. How does CVS differ from what most of us experience when we're sick? People can have the flu or an illness and they can vomit. But this is what we call an episodic stereotypic disorder. So they have repetitive cycles of nausea and vomiting that can occur every three to four weeks to every three to four months. But you don't get the flu eight times a year. So that's how it differs from just a single vomiting episode or something else. You'll hear from someone who has it. And he says when an episode of CVS hits, he can focus on nothing else. When an episode's coming on, the world is second. And all you care about is feeling better. You really don't care about anything else in the world. It's sad to say, but that's how crappy you feel. It's a terrible disease. It's something that nobody wants to admit that they have. You know, I've got cyclic vomiting syndrome. It's probably confusing to you, and it's something that I want nobody to live with. Who wants to throw up? Nobody wants to throw up. It's the worst. You can learn more about CVS by checking out our June show, episode number 62. In July, the focus was human papillomavirus, HPV, the sexually transmitted disease affecting over 80 million Americans which can lead to cervical cancer, throat cancer, and more. 
Dr. Denise Uyar is Associate Professor, Division of Gynecology, Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She said if you've never heard of HPV, you're not alone. Many people haven't. But, paradoxically, it's a very common disease. The human papillomavirus is the most common sexually transmitted disease. It's maybe not as well known as some of the other STDs, probably because there's not a lot of symptoms from it. So you can have an infection and it really cannot be a problem for the person, so they don't seek treatment for it necessarily. And while it may sound like a singular disease... There's over 100 subtypes. About 14 of them are cancer-causing, so it's oral mucosa, anogenital mucosa, those are the main places where we see that infection cause cancer. But she said that while millions are infected with HPV, most infections won't develop into cancers. Most people's immune system can handle this infection and the infection is thought to be cleared or at least in control for most people in about two years. But there's a small percent of the population, their immune system is not able to control the infection, and so the virus is allowed to kind of coexist, and ultimately cancer can develop. The good news is, HPV is preventable. There is a way to prevent with vaccination. Since 2006, there's been a vaccination that's been available, and now it has nine of the HPV types in there. It is available for males and females. Then, we learned about a clinical trial that's showing positive results in treating HPV-related cervical precancers in women. Dr. Diane Harper is Senior Associate Director of the Institute for Clinical and Health Research at the University of Michigan, who shared research that is groundbreaking. It really is, because of all the therapeutic vaccines to date, none of them have been able to show the viral clearance that we've been able to show. That's critically important. Through surgery, you can remove diseased tissue, but if you don't get to the underlying HPV infection, you may have recurrences. And if we could get to destroying the actual HPV infection, we wouldn't have to worry about recurrences. And the results of her clinical trial are promising. It really gives us a strong hope that we'll be able to develop therapy that we can provide women so that they don't have to undergo these surgical procedures. We also heard the experience of Ronnie, who battled and beat HPV-related throat cancer. I was at work and I got the call and it wasn't a good one. My boss was right there and he goes, what happened? I said, I found out I got throat cancer. HPV prevalent. That phone call, that was tough. I beat it, but I would hope no one would have to go through it. I'll tell you that right now. It's likely that you've heard of cystic fibrosis, but you may not necessarily know much about it. In August, episode number 64 focused on CF, beginning with insight from Dr. Nicholas Antos director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Children's Wisconsin. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease where mucus can build up in different organ systems in the body and most specifically in the lung and the pancreas. And this over time causes increasing problems in the body and problems with their lungs and their digestive system. The level of severity for CF is a spectrum that varies from patient to patient. There's different types of CF, specifically if you have the more severe types of genes, it affects both the lungs and the pancreas. If you have some milder genes, it won't be quite as severe and it may not affect the pancreas. Some people get sick really early and need more medications earlier, and some people are just lucky and don't get a whole lot of illness. And he's confident that a cure 
is on the horizon. We're amazingly close considering what a rare disease it is, and so probably a lot sooner than we would have thought. We will have a medication that will effectively cure cystic fibrosis. And I definitely think the quality of life is going to get better over time. We also gained expert insight from Dr. Julie Biller, Chief and Professor of Pulmonary Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Biller told us that in her years of cystic fibrosis research, she's seen many discoveries that have translated into improved patient care. One is that we have a larger armamentarium of medications to treat our patients. Secondly, we've had improvements in the devices to deliver the treatment. And that just makes it easier for patients to have long, happy, productive lives. Then we heard from Amy, who is living and transitioning through life with CF. I was diagnosed at five years old because I had a lot of issues. My mom brought me to the hospital all the time. She knew something wasn't right. I was teased tremendously in middle school. I was asked often when I was going to die, and I wanted to see my 21st birthday. That was really important to me because throughout my lifetime, it was always she's not going to see her seventh birthday. She's not going to make it to 15. She's not going to make it past this. Hear Amy's story on our August show, episode number 64. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that over 3 million people in our country suffer from inflammatory bowel diseases, such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, or UC. In September, we focused on ulcerative colitis first in a conversation with Dr. Dan Stein director of the Inflammatory Bowel Program at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Ulcerative colitis is one component of something called inflammatory bowel disease. Ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune condition where the body's immune system that normally fights infection is attacking the colon for reasons we don't fully understand. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are often mentioned together. But how are they different? Crohn's disease can affect anywhere along the GI tract, from your mouth all the way down to your anus. Ulcerative colitis, as the name implies, only affects the colon. Dr. Stein also spoke to us about a clinical trial for a new medication to treat ulcerative colitis. The name of the drug is upadacitinib. It's different compared to the biologic therapies that have to be administered either by an IV or by an injection. This is an oral medication, so we have high hopes for a quicker uptake. But some UC patients don't respond to medications and require surgery to treat their UC. Right. One such surgical procedure is called an ileo J-pouch. We learned about this from Dr. Kirk Ludwig, professor and chief of colorectal surgery at Fredert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. For ulcerative colitis, we'll take out the colon and the rectum. So the J-pouch is, you take the last little bit of the small intestine, which is called the ileum, and you turn it backwards on itself and make a pouch out of it. And so the pouch becomes the reservoir for the bowel movement to go into. So it's basically just taking a place of the rectum. Dr. Ludwig said, in most cases, J-pouch surgery is highly successful. It's actually quite successful. You know, if you ask patients with a J-pouch how satisfied they are, you're always gonna find 90% or more are quite satisfied with the results of their surgery. Because it gives quality of life back to UC patients. The disease causes all these unpleasant things that the surgery by and large can get rid of. There is a solution and that's going to be an operation and quality of life should be good afterwards. Patients like Bo, a young man who recently underwent J-pouch surgery, 
in overcoming his battle with ulcerative colitis. I will be on an operating table in less than 12 hours, undergoing the J-pouch surgery, and that's gonna allow me to retain and digest food normally. In this moment, I am more nervous, but that's only because of how close it is. Deep down, I am really excited. You know, medicine's amazing. Hear Bo's inspiring story on our September show, episode number 65. Sickle cell disease is the most common inherited blood disorder, but as we discovered on our October show, it can affect a patient through their entire body. Dr. Julie Panapinto is a key member of the Sickle Cell Disease Program at Children's Wisconsin, who explained the difference between healthy red blood cells and ones afflicted with sickle cell disease. So healthy red blood cells are described as disc-shaped and very flexible and can move throughout a blood vessel and change its shape because it's soft. A sickle red blood cell is shaped like a sickle or a crescent shape. It's very rigid, and thus moving through the blood vessel is more problematic. And that difficulty passing through blood vessels causes severe pain for patients. Dr. Amanda Brando is another key member of the Sickle Cell Disease Program at Children's Wisconsin, who does extensive research on both acute and chronic pain related to the disease. We have recognized for decades that patients with sickle cell disease have these acute painful crises. However, over the last decade, the recognition of chronic pain and sickle cell disease came to attention. Patients not only experience acute painful episodes, but have a baseline chronic pain that is essentially every single day. We also heard from Nia, a high school student who suffers from sickle cell. It just feels awful, like someone's just stabbing me, like in my arm, my joints, in my lower back. It just depends. Your arm could hurt and your leg. It's not just one. But I don't think about it every single day. It's not like, darn, Nia, you have sickle cell. But I think, how can I provide for myself to not have a sickle cell crisis? Learn more about sickle cell disease on our October show, Episode number 66. Last month in November, we wrapped up our 2019 year of shows by exploring mitochondrial disease, a condition that afflicts a patient at a cellular level, often taking a devastating toll on a person's physical and motor functions, including muscle contraction, nerve impulses, and more. In order to better understand, it's important to first learn about the function of mitochondria, we turn to Dr. Blake Hill, professor of biochemistry at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who told us that mitochondria are referred to as the powerhouse of our cells. They're famous for being the powerhouse of the cell, and they are called the powerhouse of the cell because they synthesize the main energy molecule that the body uses, a small molecule called adenosine triphosphate, ATP. Next, we heard from Dr. Donald Basel, medical director of the Genetic Center at Children's Wisconsin. Dr. Basel offered this simplified explanation of the very complex mitochondrial disease. I think the easiest way to think about that is literally just flipping the power switch off. If you take a cell and you switch its power source off, it's not going to function very well. The degree to which you switch its power off obviously defines how much function is left in that cell and how well it's functioning depends on what we see from a clinical perspective. Which means mitochondrial disease isn't a singular disease. 
but rather... It's completely a spectrum of disease. As diagnosticians and physicians, we always see the worst case, and we diagnose those cases first. And then as our understanding improves, we begin to see the other variants of that particular disorder. And because it's a variable set of diseases, mitochondrial disease can be very challenging to diagnose. Dr. Mike Lawler is Associate Director of the Neuroscience Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So the diagnostic setup for detecting mitochondrial disease isn't even standard across hospitals across the U.S. That's why research leading to a gold standard approach for diagnosis is a priority. Certainly pushing for a standardized approach is important. So the development of new diagnostic tests would be nice, and this will also help people get all on the same page with how it needs to be assessed diagnosed and things like that. Then we heard from Morgan, whose life has been dramatically changed and challenged by mitochondrial disease. The mito interferes with my ability to walk and be more independent and to be social, of course. I literally lost everything. 21 and I was diagnosed with mito. Hear her remarkable story in our November show, episode number 67. And with that, we wrap up another year and this special 2019 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. We thank all of our interview guests throughout the year, and we especially want to thank you for listening to, sharing, and supporting CTSI Discovery Radio throughout the year and in the year to come. Throughout 2020, CTSI Discovery Radio will continue to air the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you blessed, safe holidays and a happy, healthy new year. To listen to the podcast of any of our shows online and on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. You'll also find it wherever you listen to your other favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.